The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Monday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little known fascinating facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows and more. We're two guys with too much free time on our hands. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigl. And today we're talking about the Spice Girls debut album, Spice, which was released in the U.S. 25 years ago this year. That's incredible. I can't believe it's been that long. I felt every year. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb, Heigl, and guess that you were not the world's biggest Spice Girls fan in 1997. No. And it's not because I had like any particularly advanced taste in pop culture at the time. I mean, I, I like listened to the Casey Kasem Top 40 countdown on Sundays. I like was still taping stuff off the modern rock radio. Like I was not. That's adorable. But you know what's dumber is the first CD I ever bought, which I think must have been this year with my own money, was Eagle Eye Cherry's debut because I liked Save Tonight. So, no, I'm not coming from a position of, like, <laughs> authority or a high moral value on this. My sister is four years younger than me, so she was, like, very much the target audience. And I just remember having it in our household constantly. And also, like, every girl in my elementary school, like, running around and, like, throwing the peace sign in my face and screaming girl power. So that's my memory of the Spice Girls. <laughs> so, fair to middling. I would say. Okay. All right. <laughs> I really enjoyed the Spice Girls because I was and am a huge Beatles fan. And yeah. I really thought it captured that whole energy of, you know, just fun, being in a gang mm -hmm. with your friends. It felt very, just very up. I liked how sort of effervescent it all felt and, and catchy. I mean, the songs were really good, too. I mean, Yeah, the songs bang. The songs are still really good. good. And it's interesting. I mean, you did mention the whole, like, girl power thing. At the time, it, I mean, granted, I was, what, 10 when this album came out. It felt like I wasn't allowed to openly like it, and I deeply regret feeling that way now. Because, I mean, these songs are for everybody, much in the same way that feminism should be something that everybody participates in. Well, I think this is sort of the first time, first time I remember, like, 
feminism coming into the conversation in pop culture in such a like concentrated way as part of something that was so otherwise like frothy. And I don't know, man, if you get like a bunch of teen girls being like girl power, it's a great thing. Um, the sort of Machiavellian put together aspects of this are maybe another part of it. But, uh, you know, let's not put the card ahead of the spice here. Do you have a um, uh, favorite spice girl? It's probably posh. Really? Yeah, I just, I yeah, I mean Victoria Beckham's cheekbones, man. I don't know. I she's a she's a pretty lady. She a real pretty lady. <laughs> my favorite Spice Girl was Jerry because uh, she reminded me of my first love, who was Madeline, the little French orphan, the animated character. <laughs> yeah. Have we not? T- I, wow. Judging from your your seemingly genuine laugh, maybe I've never no, told you I- this. I think you have told me that before, but I don't understand the connection between like. Um, I mean, it was purely the the red hair thing, and I my my first actual real mm-hmm. life, you know, human being crush looked a lot like Madeline and Jerry, and uh, yeah, I was in fifth grade. I went out during recess and picked her flowers that I left on her desk, and oh I got poison God, ivy Jordan. from doing that. <laughs> and also, she wasn't impressed in any way because I didn't knock the dirt <laughs> off of it. So she came back in from recess, and there was just a clump of weeds and dirt on her desk. And I think uh, she was upset. And then the next day, my hand swelled up. And I have pretty much been just reenacting that scene in various relationships <laughs> for the last 25 years. Good Lord. All right. Well, folks, with all that in mind, keep listening to find out what Ziga Ziga actually means. Margaret Thatcher's surprise influence on the legacy of girl power and how Baby Spice almost died during the Say You'll Be There video shoot. Here is everything you didn't know about the Spice Girls' first album, Spice. The Spice Girls phenomenon began with a classified ad in a London trade magazine called The Stage. The listing read, Wanted. Are you, just the letters are you, are you 28 to 23 with the ability to sing slash dance? Are you streetwise, outgoing, ambitious, and dedicated? Heart Management Limited are a widely successful music industry management consortium currently forming a choreographed singing slash dancing all-female pop act for a recording deal. Open audition March 4th. Please bring sheet music or backing cassettes. First of all, did Prince write that? What is the R? <laughs> Why would you spell out R-U and then put all of those other large words in there if you're paying by the line for a classified? So, Heart Management, not a consortium, three guys, a financier by the name of Sheik Murphy, and then a father and son duo, Chris and Bob Herbert. Chris Herbert, in the grand tradition of money men becoming personality wranglers was an accountant and then got involved in the music industry in 1985 he took a liking wikipedia quote to twin friends of his son chris and attempted to market a group that he pitched as the 80s answer to the bay city rollers that did not take apparently and by the 90s they are putting together the spice girls This classified ad drew uh, over 400 women to this audition, and they were split into groups of 10. And first they were asked to perform a dance routine to the song Stay by the group Eternal. Which sounds really like a Spice Girls song. It does. Oh, it very much does. Yes, they definitely had the sound in mind. And then they had solo auditions where all of the hopefuls sung a song of their choice. Mel B at her Spice Girls audition sang Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All. Very 
Sure. Ambitious choice yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mel C sung the Pointer Sisters classic, I'm So Excited. Also very good. Uh, Victoria Beckham <laughs> sang Mine Hair from the musical Cabaret because she had a background in musical theater. Uh, God damn, posh, even then. Good Lord. Um, and so the the 400-odd women were uh, narrowed down to, I say odd, I meant like not exactly 400, not that they were strange people. They might have been. Maybe they might have been. I don't know. Uh, they were narrowed down to about 12 before a final audition. Interestingly, Jerry Hollowell missed the original audition, and there are conflicting reasons as to why. The two most reported accounts are that she was working Working and unable to make the appointment. And the other was that she'd returned home from vacation in Spain and was too sunburned to attend. Which, I mean, that's the thing about, you know, Ginger's burn. Uh, that's so, that could be real. Jerry gave an interview to Marie Claire where she explained that she missed this audition because she was in Spain, not being sunburned, but visiting her grandmother. So Aww. kind of, yeah, very nice. Uh, she returned to the UK and decided to ring the Herberts to see if they were still looking for somebody for this group they were putting together. Turns out they were, and she got a chance to audition and got the gig. And Jerry wasn't the only Spice Girl who missed the audition. Mel C also was sort of a late arrival because she had tonsillitis and missed one of the early rounds of the auditions. And then she basically called them and begged them and said, look, I, I can't even talk, let alone sing. Can we wait? And the management said, oh, I'm sorry. You know, we, we, we've got everybody we need. And then I guess a couple of weeks later, one of the girls hadn't worked out and they called her back to come on and do another round of auditions. And her performance obviously impressed the management group because they invited her to join. And that wasn't the only near miss for the Spice Girls lineup that we know and love. Yeah, The Lost Spice Girl. Is, it should be just like the title of its own 17-part podcast. <clears throat> so the five girls who were initially chosen as part of the lineup moved into a house together in Maidenhead. I love this call out you put in. Headley Grange, the haunted former workhouse that was the rehearsal choice for the 70s rock dinosaurs, was not available at the time. Nor was Mick Jagger's baronial estate Stargroves. Um, I love how these managed people just throw their, you know, they're putting a group together and they it's almost like boot camp. Yeah. I think uh, Lou Pearlman did that with uh, with NSYNC. I think he had them living in like a barracks at his house in Orlando or something. And I don't, don't they do that with like K-pop groups too? Dude, I would, did I ever tell you my BTS story? No. I don't um, think so. When I was at People, like right before BTS became like the world conquering phenomenon, they were definitely on the upswing. They were very much a known quantity and they were huge. They came to People. What? Did I miss this? I think so. Um, but they were marched into one of the conference rooms looking drawn and emaciated and like they had just been on a forced march here from Korea. And... <laughs> They got a bunch of like Korean takeout, which seemed to be the only joy in their day. And I was not allowed in the room while they were like eating or pre hanging out. And then they come back out, made up in their clothes and just on like mugging and laughing and like just camera ready. But that was the starkest transition I have ever seen in any celebrity of just going from like, I want to die and my body is reflecting that to here is my like 100 watt star power just on the turt like over the course of an hour it must have been really good korean food um 
<laughs> anyway, the girls who are put in this pressure cooker environment, Emma Button is not among them. Uh, instead, there was a 17-year-old named Michelle Stevenson who uh, left voluntarily. But the story behind that is somewhat murky. Some say she was fired. Uh, <laughs> classic Bex soundbite. She would later claim that Stevenson was fired because she just couldn't be arsed to put in the same amount of work as the rest of the girls. But Stevenson is adamant that she left to look after her mom, who had been diagnosed with lung cancer. And if you take a quick look at the where are they now file, she said that she has no regrets about leaving the Spice Girls. And she went on to become a television producer. A television presenter, I'm sorry. And then she started working as session singer and doing songwriting work. She's been a backing singer for Ricky Martin and Julio Iglesias. So, yeah, she's still in the industry. She apparently has no regrets. Hashtag no regrets. (laughs) Enter Emma Bunton. uh, Recommended by the girl's singing teacher. But she actually had a bit of history with Bex, uh, with Victoria. And this is interesting. They all kind of knew each other. And this is a really fascinating bit of apocrypha. Mel B. and Jerry Hallowell apparently met on an audition for the movie Tank Girl, which is that utterly insane 1995 movie starring Lori Petty. Have you seen Tank Girl? Years and years. The, my main Lori Petty association is A League of Their Own, where she was Kit or Eugenia Davis's sister. Right. I think she was in that, right. But I, yeah, I forget most of Tank Girl. That movie's wacky. So imagining one of the Spice Girls in it is even wackier. But um, yeah, so Emma was shooting to become an actress. Spice World's um, also pretty wacky, I have to say. Yeah, that's true. So they all shared a small terraced house in the London suburb of Maidenhead. And speaking to The Guardian in 2019, Emma Bunton gave us a little view into the life of of the Spice House. Mel C. and Jerry were in charge of taking out the bins, and she was on cooking duty. And she said, I used to make beans on toast for everyone, while Mel B. used to cook corned beef and rice, because British food is disgusting. (laughs) Hearing you read all these Britishisms is giving me so much joy, especially because, I mean, I'm a real, I'm a huge Anglophile, and you... Not so much. Not not so much. It cuts off right around Eric Clapton. Do you (laughs) like British food? Does your Anglophilia extend? Yes, I do. I do. Well, I don't know. I mean, chicken pot pie is great. Shepherd's pie is great. They make good, bland curry for my weak (laughs) stomach. They're candy rules. British candy is the best candy. British sweets are the best sweets. Well, Willy Wonka is a real story. Yeah. (laughs) I'm just going to keep trying to stump you by saying like baffling things that you then have to edit around. Um, Another fun inside look into the the Spice House, um, hashtag Spice House. Baby Spice is uh, apparently frightened of large things. (laughs) <laughs> which is a deeply bizarre factoid, but there's a, a, a Rolling Stone cover story in the band in July of 1997 by Chris Heath. Incredible he, story, incredible piece. Well, it, it, more for what's included than what's left out as like a hagiographical work. He says this of babies of Emma Button. She can't look at an airplane close up. She thinks it might stem from when she visited the center of London as a little girl and saw a gigantic model of King Kong on the side of the building. One thing she very much wants to do while in New York is avoid seeing the Statue of Liberty. I think she'd scare me, Emma says. She might fall on me. Ah, good lord. What is... That is bizarre. 
Anyway. Apparently, as far as I know, Scary Spice is not scared of not scary things. <laughs> Posh Spice is uh, not scared of tacky things. Sporty Spice is not scared of inactivity. And Ginger Spice is not afraid of... what? What's the opposite of ginger? Mayonnaise? Uh, I don't know. Some kind of British food, surely. Uh... <clears throat> Continue. <laughs> uh... Now, this is really mind-blowing to me. The group were not originally called the Spice Girls. Early in the group's development, they were known as Touch, which is actually... Has that name been taken since? That's a good group name, Touch. For the kind of music they're doing, for pop group, that's a good pop group name. So, yeah, early in the group's development, they were known as Touch, but then they became known as simply Spice. But then they ultimately added the girls part. And there are two reasons cited for this. One is that there's an American rapper who went by the name Spice, so they changed their name to avoid the confusion. And the other story is that the industry insiders just referred to the group kind of dismissively as the Spice Girls, and the name just stuck. I just want to get into a quick aside about the rapper Spice. He's a Californian man named Robert Lee Green Jr., and he went by Spice One, with Spice being an acronym for Sex, Pistols, Indo, Cash, and Entertainment which rules. Uh, He started putting out music in 1992. It was apparently buddies with Tupac and was on the last song that Tupac recorded before being shot. Spice was also shot in 2007, (laughs) just sitting outside his parents' house, but he has since recovered. You know who hasn't been shot? (laughs) Any of the members of the Spice Girls. This is kind of an amazing badass story about, I mean, they they were really were living girl power. They got out of the really terrible management contract by stealing their demos from their office and literally skipping town. So, you know, as we talked about earlier, the band was put together by the father-son team, Bob and Chris Herbert, heart management. But the situation really backfired for them, and they were basically sort of destroyed by their own Frankenstein monster. Hoisted by their own petard, if you will. Yes. The girls in the Spice Girls disagreed with the material that they were being asked to sing, the stuff they were being told to wear, who should sing lead, because I guess in the early days they wanted the band to have, like, kind of the opposite of what they became, a uniform look. Everybody was supposed to wear the same, like, right. basically Adidas tracksuits and stuff, which is so weird because the opposite happened, and they all yeah. kind of became known for their distinct individual personalities. So the group were really dissatisfied with their management, and the split came in October of 1994, and the reasons for this vary. The Spice Girls claim it was because management were forcing them to sign what they thought was a really unacceptable contract, and the soon-to-be ex-management team claimed it was because they were planning to throw out one of the five Spice Girls and the intended victim knew it and uh, the Spice Girl that was about to get the axe basically uh, played on the loyalty of her fellow Spice Girls and said, let's get out of this. It's just kind of amazing. They, they didn't say who it was that they wanted to I was going to say, who do you think it was? I it don't was know. Probably... The most information that they gave was they said that she was a strong enough character to persuade the other girls to leave the management contract. And they also said, kind of cattily, uh, you always find the least talented is the biggest danger in the group. I mean, and... based on that, no shade, but I kind of think it's posh. I can't see her as staging a... You know, a, walk a heist, out. a walkout and a heist, like stealing their their demo masters. I don't know. Well, because Posh didn't sing live, right? And she was like, I'm not the best singer in the group. And if I remember correctly, she was no great shakes as a dancer either. So mm. all she had were those cheekbones. 
and apparently a cutting way with a soundbite. So, <laughs> um, I don't know. That's interesting. That's a real one for conjecture. Yeah. So we don't know who was going to be the Spice Girl that was supposedly going to get the axe, but Jerry, Mel C, and Mel B paid a visit to Heart Management's offices where they absconded with the master recordings. I don't even know if that's the right use of the word absconded, but we're leaving that. Kidnapped. Kidnapped. Stole. We'll just go with stole <laughs> the demo recordings for the songs they'd written so far, including Wannabe. And they met up with the rest of the Spice Girls at the side of the road and drove up north. I mean, this is a full-on heist here. Uh, and You from- son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is the real Ocean's 8 here. This is like, it's pretty incredible. And then they, so they drove up north where they booked their own sessions with some songwriters and negotiated a new management deal with Simon Fuller, who basically is is the king of British pop in the 90s and early 2000s. He created Pop Idol, which became American Idol in this country, X Factor. He signed Madonna to Chrysalis. Yeah, when he's an A&R guy. I didn't realize that. He signed, signed on Holiday. I did not realize that. Wow. Mm -hmm. So they kind of, they basically bought their way to freedom. They paid off the original managers and signed with Simon Fuller. Simon was persuaded to sign the group to his management company after hearing uh, one of the demos. And amazingly, it wasn't Wannabe or Say You'll Be There or To Become One. It was the more low-key R&B song, Something Kind of Funny, which is kind of more of a deep cut. That was the song that he really thought had hit potential. Yeah, I have um, no memory of that song. Yeah, no, it's kind of a deep cut. Uh, the girls celebrated their record deal <laughs> by throwing Posh Spice's panties out of a taxi window, as one does. <laughs> they talked about this, uh, um, I think it was an article in The Guardian. Yeah, they were so excited when they were signed with Virgin Records that they tore Victoria's knickers off, this is a quote, and threw them out a taxi window. And speaking of the Spice Girls' underwear... <laughs> the quintet had a real sort of novel use for their knickers, as it were. In the aforementioned interview with Rolling Stone in 1997, they revealed that they often didn't use scrunchies to tie up their hair. Instead, they used their underwear, which was a trend apparently inspired by Mel B. Uh, the girls revealed in this interview that they used a G-string. That was their favorite because there was less material to get in the way of tying it. Um Hi, well, get us out of here. What's the next backstory we got? <laughs> Good Lord, let's get... We're in the weeds here. We got to get out of here. Uh, well, you can't talk about the Spice Girls without talking about their nicknames. And none of them came up with this or anyone involved. Um, that wasn't they, part of the original structure of the group, those incredible nicknames. No, sir. And wow. after signing with Simon Fuller, they were interviewed by Peter Lorraine for Top of the Pops magazine. And this was, I remember these articles everywhere in the 90s, like Teen Beat, Tiger Read, these guides to the Spice Girls. And you would get, every single pop group had one. You had like their favorite food, their nickname for their dog. And anyway, so he said, we thought we could make up some stupid names for them. But it was never That's a quote meant from him, by the way. Yeah, that was his names. quote. Sorry, that's Lorraine's quote. We thought we could make up some stupid names, but it was never meant to be adopted globally. They were going to call one of them Old Spice. <laughs> Just hilarious. But he declined to mention who. Yeah. Jennifer Cothran, one of the magazine's staff writers, explained the, how the nicknames were chosen. She said, and I quote, Victoria was posh spice because she was wearing Gucci-style mini dresses and seemed pouty and reserved. 
Emma wore pigtails and sucked a lollipop, so obviously she was Baby Spice. Ooh. Mel C. spent the whole time leaping around in her tracksuit, so we called her Sporty Spice. I named Mel B. Scary Spice because she was so shouty, and Jerry was Ginger Spice simply because of her hair. Not much thought went into that one. Or any of them, really. I <laughs> Baby Spice does not sit well with me. Anyway. So Top of the Pops publishes this article with an illustration of a spice rack. And lo and behold, a legend is minted. (sighs) What do you you say about those nicknames, man? Um, pretty rough. Uh, Sexy baby. Yeah. The the the, only black one's nickname is Scary. Yeah, that's the one that really... uh, Because she was shouty? Good lord. British people, man. All right. <laughs> moving on. Uh, <laughs> please tweet at us using the hashtag sexy baby. <laughs> um, you mentioned this earlier, but it's ironic that they that the whole part of this brand is every single one having such a distinct personality because originally they were pitched as like sort of like the uniformly dressed group. You bring this up, the early shots of the Beatles all in the matching suits. Uh, And as recently as 2016, Jerry was talking about this. She told Marie Claire, we bought tight white vintage Adidas t-shirts for everyone in the band. Because when you're in a band, you should all look the same, right? She says, we wore them at our first ever performance for our family and friends in a community center in Finchley, a neighborhood in North London. I can hear the bile just rising in your throat as you say these British names. all All the neighborhood names are so funny to me. Uh, It quickly became obvious that Victoria and Emma weren't exactly comfortable in the t-shirts we'd picked out. It was also obvious that the only way forward was to celebrate our individuality and let everyone be herself. So we did. Yes, and that really, this starts to get to the, the heart of girl power. The Spice Girls, they really started out as sort of the female answer to all the boy bands who'd been cluttering up the charts. I mean, the new kids on the block and what have you. I mean, this was pre-Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, but who are the other boy groups around this time? Uh, well, Boys Two Men would probably be, boys to, oh, I mean, yeah. but they were but actually They're like, not a boy group, though. You know? Yeah, I mean, they're like, I think they were marketed as such, like, the, That's true. The, the, all wearing, like, the big baggy sweaters and, yeah. like, that kind of thing. But um, would have been new kids, would have been the biggest phenomenon at the time, right? Yeah, maybe new edition. Although that was probably a little little further back than that. But uh, mm-hmm. but so the, the Spice Girls were kind of marketed as sort of an answer to these boy bands, and the idea seems really obvious now. But when their PR first started toting this group around the teen magazines, no one was interested, and the rationale was that girls don't want to see girls in bands; they want to see good-looking boys to pin up on their walls, which is an insanely reductive approach to how people appreciate music. And the magazines were wrong as it happens. And this was due not just because of the quality of the songs, which are so great, but also, it has to be said, because of the whole message of girl power, which was such an instrumental part of the group's image uh, and just something that cropped up in all the interviews they gave. It was just a big part of their story. And... It's difficult to imagine this now, but five women in a band sharing equal vocals and songwriting credits, this was a novel concept in the mid-90s. And obviously they were manufactured, you know, in quotes, to some degree, but the Spice Girls were the quintessential girl gang, you know? They were working-class women projecting individualism and spreading the word about feminism that was understandable and palatable to their teenage fans. And the Spice Girls' particular approach to 
girl power was seen as the sort of boisterous, independent, sex-positive response to something called lad culture, which is more of a British thing. I didn't really make it too much over into the States. If you aren't familiar, it's frank boy like, shit, right? It's like, it's well, like the right. notion of like, it's like meathead, like loudish. You know, I mean, think beer. of Noel and Liam Gallagher, like whacking themselves with guitars, like cricket bats and then dumping pints of beer over each other's heads. I mean, that's, that's lad culture, really. Mm, yes. And the Spice Girls, you know, sang about putting their friends before boyfriends and about having confidence in yourself and not letting people put them down. And, kind of most importantly, they seem to just be having a blast. I mean, I mentioned this at the start of the episode. I mean, it was that whole thing that the Beatles sort of embodied, where they just looked like they were having the time of their lives, whatever they were doing. They were just at like the top of their game and everything. They were just on the buzz of their fame. And it just seemed like they were really enjoying themselves. And that was just so infectious. And, you know, I mean, obviously there have been critics, especially at the time, who dismissed girl power as basically a shallow marketing tactic and, you know, went even further and accused the group of commercializing feminism as, you know, as a way to sell records. But to a generation of young women at the time, that message stuck. And, you know, it it was the first step in a lot of people's education towards uh, feminism. I didn't realize this. Uh, Hallowell said that she didn't come across the term girl power until the 1996 single by Shampoo. And this is funny, too. 1996, a week before Wannabe hits the charts, this band Shampoo has a single come out called Girl Power. And they were they were eclipsed by those who they by those they spawned. Yeah, I think the, the whole Girl Power slogan, I think, grew out of like the Riot Girl movement. And yeah. I think was first coined by Bikini Kill in 1991. It was interesting. The late feminist writer Kathy Acker interviewed the Spice Girls for The Guardian in 1996. And early on in her piece, she summed up the period feminism, especially to female intellectuals, had become extinct. Where have all the women gone to? She asked. Then came a twist named The Spice Girls. The Spices, though they deny it, are babes. The blonde, the redhead, the dark, sultry fashion model. And they're more. They both are and represent a voice that has too long been repressed. The voices, not really the voice, of young women. And, just as important, of women not from the educated classes. The Spice Girls, and girls like them, and the girls who like them, resemble their American counterparts in two ways. They're sexually curious certainly pro-sex, and they do not feel that they are stupid or that they should not be heard because they didn't attend the right universities. If any of this speculation is valid, then it is up to feminism to grow, to take on what the Spice Girls and women like them are saying, and to do what feminism has always done in England, to keep on transforming society as society is best transformed with lightness and enjoy. That's a great quote. It is, yeah. It's a great piece. That's Kathy Acker and The Guardian in 1996. Google it. Check it out. It's a really great article. All right. So, Jordan, in their own words, what was girl power to the Spice Girls? Yes. There was an interview also from 1996, also in The Guardian, by Cheryl Garat, I think her name is, where she asked each of the Spice Girls what their definition of girl power is. And Victoria said, it's looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, this is me. I'm going to make the best of it. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to have a positive attitude and not going to be dominated by anyone, especially not men. We're up for equality, for having a laugh. Mel B says, it's giving yourself that little bit of liberation. If you want to stand up and go, arg, then do it. 
You decide the kind of life you want to lead, whether you're black, white, gay, single parent, whatever. Just go for it. I don't think I ever realized the class component to the Spice Girls. I actually really like that. Definitely adds a really interesting nuance to it. Mm -hmm. Mel C. said this. There is a new attitude. Girls are taking control. If you want to wear a short skirt, then you go on and wear it. You should wear what you want. It's worth noting that Mel C. also has a girl power tattoo or words to that effect. She's a tattoo in her upper right arm, and it's two Japanese symbols, women and strength. So girl power, in other words. What did Jerry say about uh, girl power? <laughs> None of us are conventional beauties, which, come on. And in, a way, <laughs> and in a way that's really inspiring for girls because it shows you don't have to be gorgeous to be up there doing it. Ah, that's the one that rings the falsest to me. I mean, we're two straight white guys. I'm not really going to weigh in on their <laughs> definition of uh, feminism, but calling none of the Spice Girls conventional beauties feels like a stretch to me. And finally, Emma says, the message we're putting across is, we're doing it, girls. So can you. Even if you have to shout a bit louder, barge through all these people, then do it. And, you know, there were all these jokes at the time when the Spice Girls came out that, oh, you know, it took a boardroom full of male music executives and marketing gurus to come up with the concept of girl power. And that's not true. I mean, as we mentioned earlier, this was a slogan that grew out of the Riot Girl movement and uh, was initially coined by the U.S. punk band Bikini Kill in 1991. I wonder if they ever crossed paths. Gonna guess no. Yeah. Do Spice Girls come in and hit Olympia, Washington, the DIY circuit? <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
You know who was a uh, who the Spice Girls cited as a pioneer of girl power, Heigl? Uh, who, Jordan? Margaret Thatcher, first female prime minister. I guess when you view it with that single factoid, first female prime minister of England, that's pretty cool. But then when you dive in much more, uh... Yeah, I mean, what's the Reader's Digest version of Margaret Thatcher? She destroyed the mining unions in Wales and Scotland. She got architect of the Falklands War. Whatever. Please read this so that I can choke down my bile. Yes, there was an interview that the Spice Girls gave to a uh, what's traditionally seen as a right-wing magazine called The Spectator just after their first album came out. When uh, the Spice Girls were asked about conservative ex-prime minister Margaret Thatcher, and Ginger Spice proudly announced, we Spice Girls are true Thatcherites. That's the quote. Uh, she went on to suggest that Thatcher, still a pretty, I can't even say a divisive figure, a figure pretty much of scorn of most of the the youth of Britain at this time. Jerry called her the original Spice Girl, the pioneer of her ideology, girl power. Uh, (laughs) Posh, I guess, weighed in on this too. We met Tony Blair. His hair's all right, but we don't agree with his tax policies. Um, This was like a whole miniature scandal at the time about the Spice Girls being uh, conservatives. And uh, although Sporty later said in a different interview, and this is her quote, I think Thatcher is a complete prick. So (laughs) my favorite quote on Margaret Thatcher of all time uh, is this uh, comedian named Frankie Boyle. He was talking about the funeral for Margaret Thatcher and how much it cost. Three million pounds. And he said three million for the funeral of Margaret Thatcher. For three million, you could give everyone in Scotland a shovel and we could dig a hole so deep we could hand her over to Satan in person. I love Frankie Boyle. So, I mean, when this whole interview with this conservative magazine came out, the newspapers went absolutely nuts. And the Spice Girls were on the front page of all these British tabloids. And there were articles for weeks in every newspaper debating the significance of the Spice Girls' political positions. And three of the Spice Girls had very divergent views. Mel C. was Labour, which is like Democrats here. Mel B. described herself as an anarchist. And... How much Emma Goldman did you read, Mel B? Like, talk to me about your... Oh, my God. And Emma has declared herself uninterested in politics. But, yeah, the message that was picked up was that the Spice Girls were basically uh, a conservative Trojan horse. And this was, like, discussed on the floor of Parliament. They became known as the Spice Vote, uh, which was... (laughs) Basically became as much of an issue in the British election in 1996 as, like, the soccer mom's vote had been in America. And uh, on May 1st, Britain elected Tony Blair as a new prime minister by a landslide. And after all that, none of the Spice Girls voted. (laughs) That's truly the perfect capstone to this. Well, speaking of toilets... One of the most famous bits of the Spice Girls lore may have been inspired by Mel B's trip to the toilet... Well, that's right. I'm talking about the phrase zig zig ah <laughs> Do go what? on. I, yeah, I love okay. this. So wannabe, you know, the opening riff to that is inspired by summer nights in Greece. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A guy named with the tremendously British name of Richard Biff Stannard. And his musical collaborator, Matt Rowe, written in under an hour. Grubal wow. received writing credits on it, so it was a collaborative work. Hallowell, in particular, inspired a ton of stuff. She would jot down a bunch of ideas in a notebook, 
different scribblings, different uh, jokes, lyrics, song titles. And Mel B wrote the Here's the Story from A to Z rap. Uh, she wrote it in the toilet in eight minutes. And she's credited for Zigga Zigga. Go yes. ahead, Jordan. Yeah, I, we, we could tag team this one, but there yeah. are many, 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 many theories about what exactly zigzag ah really means. Some critics have theorized that it was about female sexual desire. There's the musicologist Sheila Whiteley said that it was a made-up phrase, the kind that Lewis Carroll invented, like Jabberwocky. I love um, that. Which is, yeah, that's a, that's a very um, generous read of what Zigga Zigga probably means. And this this whole theory gained a lot of purchase in 1997 when Mel C. told a journalist, you know when you're in a gang and you're having a laugh and you're making up silly words? Well, we were having a giggle and we made up the silly word, Zigga Zigga. And what are some other theories, Heigl? Well, Jordan, I'm so glad you asked. Some people have pitched it as being shorthand for suck a d- which is charming. Char- yeah. As well as cigar. This brings us back to the toilet. Yeah, so Moby says, working in the same studio as them, there was an 80s pop singer, who she didn't name, who was smoking a cigar in the toilet. Who was it? Was it Richard Marks? Phil Collins? Mike from Mike and the Mechanics? One of the <laughs> mechanics? Uh, it's probably a bassist. Craig David. <laughs> uh, and one of the guys who co-wrote the song, Richard Stanner, says, it does mean something, but we're never going to tell anyone what. I'll say one thing. It's quite rude. So in the annals of pop music question marks, it's probably up there with You're So Vain as far as unresolved. <laughs> and you ought to know and yeah. being about Dave Couillet or not. And, you know, despite all that, they didn't even want it to be the lead single. That is absolutely nuts to me. I mean, yeah, apparently the record company just didn't think that Wannabe was the song to launch the group. And they wanted to use the song Love Thing, which, again, I mean, I hate to call it a deep cut because Spice Girls don't have that many songs. But it's not one of their better-known ones. And I guess the group, sort of led by Mel B and Jerry Hollowell, were so adamant that their debut song should be Wannabe that Hollowell apparently told Simon Fuller, their manager, you know, it's not negotiable as far as we're concerned. Wannabe is our first single. So they really put their foot down and they got their way. And it's they were right. Then they were absolutely right because the song broke a 32 year old Beatles record on its release. uh, In addition to the many commercial plaudits received. Wannabe entered the U.S. Hot 100 at number 11 in 1997, and it remains the highest debut on the chart by a brand new British act. And the Beatles have previously held this record from 1964 when I Want to Hold Your Hand debuted at number 12. What do you say about Wannabe? Um, It is an indelible pop song, um, scientifically proven to be the catchiest song of all time. According to a 2014 study by the University of Amsterdam and Manchester's Museum of Science and Industry, participants in this project identified Wannabe in just 2.29 seconds, probably due to the laugh that she does at the start of the track, which, talk about... uh, Mel B's laugh, right? Yeah. Uh, What other songs did this beat, Jordan? It beat Lou Bega's Mambo No. 5, which was... (laughs) which was recognized in 2.48 seconds, as opposed to Wannabe's 2.29. And it also beat Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, which clocked in at being recognized after just 2.62 seconds. I refuse to believe you can't identify Eye of the Tiger from the downbeat of that song. 
Chang. Like that's mm. one of the most recognizable openings of all time. But you know, another person who finds wannabe catchy is Jerry because she sang it at her own wedding. Oh, to F1 racing boss Christian Horner. And I guess she played like a ballad version. Like, what's the like the slow moving torch song version of Wannabe? Yeah, I mean, because the song sung to a man is kind of a threat. <laughs> so I guess I haven't really thought too much about it until right now. But um... <laughs> anyway, speaking of harmonicas, <laughs> moving off of Wannabe to another incredible track on the Spice Girls debut, Say You'll Be There. You know, the harmonica solo on that song is played by the same guy who played the harmonica break on Karma Chameleon by mm. Culture Club, which I love that. I mean, there aren't too many harmonica solos in the top 40 in the last 20-ish years, but uh, harmonicist, if that's what you call somebody who plays a harmonica, does I that guess. sound right? Yeah. Harmonicist Judd Lander can lay claim on playing two harmonica solos on top 40 hits in the last 25 probably 30 years at this point. But yes, Judd Lander played the harmonica solo on both Say You'll Be There and Culture Club's Karma Chameleon. Um, Say You'll Be There also borrows from an obscure 90s R&B track. This is so funny to me because like, there's always these lawsuits that come out with a big song, but this is truly one of the most bizarre cases. So please. Yes. Not long after Say You'll Be There entered the charts, it became the target of a few plagiarism cases. And the first came in December 1996, when an Israeli soldier named Edith Shichman, I think is how you say her name, accused the group of copying her song, Bo Alai, which translates to Come to Me. Uh, and this was released two years before Say You'll Be There in Israel. And uh, her lawyers threatened to sue, and a spokesman for the Spice Girls later declared, where there's a hit, there's a writ. There's Great. always someone who crawls out of the woodwork claiming to have written a hit song. We look forward to seeing her in court. Um, I think they settled. I'm not actually sure how that one left off. But there was another lawsuit from an American singer-songwriter named Jonathan David Buck, who goes by John B. And his lawsuit was a little bit more successful. He claimed that the chorus of Say You'll Be There was similar to an R&B track he'd written for a group called After Seven, called What Are You To Me? Very Prince-like, it's letter U, letter R, number two, me. What are you to me? And you can check this out on YouTube. There are definitely a lot of similarities. And there's enough similarities that I think he ended up having his uh, name added to the song's credits when it was reissued in later years. So there's that. But... <laughs> I mean, in the annals of pop music plagiarism long lawsuits, surely this song stands alone in having a claim against it levied by an Israeli soldier. Yeah, no, that's a new one. I'd never heard that. <laughs> I don't know. Do we know how that one, how that suit left off? No, I actually just Googled her and yeah, I can't find that it got settled. Well, whatever it was, it went away, which is probably <laughs> all the Spice Man, all what Simon Fuller ever wanted. Yeah, it's true. Uh, speaking of Say You'll Be There and Sunstroke. Yes, I mean, Say You'll Be There has a really amazing video that would do, who would it do proud? Bruce Lee? No. <laughs> Get f***ed. <laughs> I mean, okay. How dare you bring up Bruce Lee's name? Keep his well, name out of your mouth. Well, okay. I, I, it, it's, 
Bruce Lee as done by Quentin Tarantino casting a sure. British pop group. We'll, yeah. we'll go with that. And Emma Bunton was the MVP of the shoot because she was trained in karate. Baby Spice was trained in karate because her mom was an instructor. So she was kind of the one on the Say You'll Be There shoot that taught the other girls how to, you know, properly kick and punch. And the Spice Girls really pushed themselves to the limit for their work. They shot this video in the desert, in the middle of Mojave Desert, from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. And Victoria was, like, standing on the hood of a car in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's just like a hot plate. It's, I mean, you are an ant on a sidewalk when you were doing <laughs> that, basically. And she was doing that for, like, 40 minutes at a stretch. And she later said you could wring the sweat out of the catsuit she was wearing afterwards. She was so hot. Boy, I um, would have. <laughs> I was I was trying to speak as quickly as I could to not give you it in there. Anyway, uh, unfortunately, Baby Spice couldn't stand the heat and ended up collapsing due to sunstroke after doing her martial arts moves in the middle of the desert all day. And despite this, she later said that it was her favorite Spice Girls video, which suggests some kind of Stockholm syndrome because that sounds absolutely awful. Speaking of grueling video shoots. Yes, the video for Wannabe. One of the most unforgettable videos of yeah. the 90s, really. They're they're just tearing up a fancy hotel in London. It was originally going to be shot at a house in Barcelona, but the director, Johan Kamitz, failed to get permission for this house in Spain. So the shoot was relocated much more locally to the Midland Grand Hotel in London. It's still there. It's uh, by St. Pancras Station up in, in North London, if you ever want to visit. I think that staircase is still all there. But that wasn't the only minor downgrade going from Spain to just locally in London. They initially approached Tony Blair to guest in this video. Um, I guess Jerry Hollowell approached the, I don't think he was prime minister just yet. I think it was before he was elected at the 1996 Brit Awards when the group were still basically nobodies. And she went up to him and said, Mr. Blair, I'm, I'm Jerry and I'm in an all girl band. We're going to be huge. We're about to make our first video. Would you be interested in appearing in it? And apparently he was not, which is <laughs> A shame, because that would have just been the perfect cool Britannia touch at that time if they got Tony Blair to be in their music video for Wannabe. This is truly wild. Do you know the other music video that Johan Kemitz directed? No. Save Tonight by Eagle Eye Cherry. No way! <laughs> yeah. No way! Are those the only two he's done? Well, that yeah, would be I, really incredible. Well, apparently he was, in August of 2000, he was uh, just like out on a night of the town in Manhattan, was crossing the street... And he was hit by an SUV. The driver of the SUV had been shot in a gang incident and was trying to flee the scene, but lost control of the vehicle and drove it up onto the sidewalk, killing Kamitz. And then that driver died from his gunshot wounds. I guess the guy was more of an ad guy. I mean, he uh, won advertising industry awards for doing ads for Nike and Volkswagen. That is that is really interesting. Wow. Um go. Hard to really cut back to uh, <laughs> to the the lighthearted wannabe video, but yeah, this shoot was it was extremely low budget. It was around I think it was one hundred and sixty six thousand dollars, which is cheap for these sort of things. And it was cheap enough that the Spice Girls actually dressed themselves. Um, Jerry wore a twenty dollar outfit she got from a Notting Hill flea market, reportedly. And the music video it appears to be shot in one take. That's like one of the things that's cool about it. I think they actually. Sp- 
spliced it together. There's there's two very subtle edits that occur, but it's still pretty amazing. And yeah. they rehearsed it to be done in one take. So they worked really hard to work out through this entire elaborate ballet, not just with the, you know, the actors, the yeah. Spice Girls doing their thing, but having to get the cameraman with the with the steady cam going. It's funny that this was so cheap because this is in the era that music videos were expensive. Um, mm, just yeah. a year earlier, the Scream video, which was Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson, that video cost $7 million, 1995. Isn't that still the most expensive video? It is, it is. Do you know who has wow. the next three entries in this list? Madonna. I'm going to guess Katy Perry. Oh. Madonna. Oh. But Joseph Kahn, who did a bunch of those Katy Perry videos, has seven of the top most expensive ones. Unsurprisingly, Michael Jackson has a boatload. Here's a weird one that pops up in the middle. The Fred Durst directed clip for the song Rollin' from 2000. Budget of $3 million to make a video for that. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, uh, <laughs> it was apparently very cold in this hotel and they didn't want to do it any more takes than they had to. Um, and uh, it was apparently quite cold in there. And why was that? Heigl? <laughs> well, you, you can see you can see well, to quote Wikipedia, to quote Wikipedia, Brown's erect nipples. Uh, and, you know, Mel C can probably be in there as well. So this uh, wardrobe, I, I guess we'll loosely term it a, a wardrobe malfunction, actually had fairly dire consequences because, <laughs> well, dire, I'll say, I'll say dire in quotes. Suggesting anything in this has dire consequences when the director was later killed in a freak accident is feels like a cognitive disconnect, but go off. Okay, fair. <laughs> yes. Um, the video was actually banned in some Asian countries for this, what I'll, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll loosely term, a, a, this wardrobe malfunction. Um, and the Spice Girls record company, Virgin Records, was really not happy about the video for that reason. And they also just didn't like it artistically. They thought that the lighting was too dark and gloomy. And a lot of the takes that are in the final video show the Spice Girls like bumping into furniture and looking behind them. And, and you know, because a lot of their, what they're doing they're like moving backwards and stuff and it just looked to the record executives at least it looked kind of unfinished and unprofessional uh and they asked them to reshoot it actually the other thing i think is really amusing too is that they thought that basically the spice girls looked too threatening in this video because Aww. they're just you know dancing through a hotel and kind of getting in like stodgy people's faces and they thought that was just like a bad look especially for the video for their debut single i guess so I guess I could almost kind of, sort of, maybe, if you squint, understand where they're coming from, but still seems stupid. So the label asked for reshoots and also for an alternative version of the video for the American market, but the Spice Girls refused, and that was totally fine because it went on to win Best Dance Video at the 1997 MTV Video Music Awards, so it all worked out just fine. You know what else was banned in the Far <laughs> East? What was that, Jordan? The song To Become One. So this song was apparently inspired by the, quote, special relationship developing between Hallowell and writer Matt Rowe. Mel B hinted at this in her autobiography, saying, when he, Rowe, and Jerry started making eyes at each other, I knew what was going on, even though they denied it. I knew them both too well for it to be a secret for me. Producer Richard Stannard commented about the fondness between Hallowell and Rowe. Was that yours, the fondness? Probably, yeah. <laughs> He said, I don't want to get into the side of things. They were very close. They clicked. 
it's a good euphemism. And I think the lyrics in To Become One came from that, especially the first verse, which they wrote together. I really hope that Jerry Hollowell and one of her song co-writers had, I, I hope that this song came from there, the flame between them. So you know what's really interesting? They changed the second verse to be uh, supportive of gay rights. The second line of the second verse, any deal that we endeavor, which is a clunker, boys and girls feel good together. They changed it in the single version to once again, if we endeavor, love will bring us back together to make it less heteronormative. And Bunton later said that this change was necessary because they realized that the group had become LGBT icons. I think that's actually remarkably progressive of them. Hong Kong disagreed. (laughs) (laughs) The Hong Kong uh, release of the album To Become One was left off for reasons that were never made totally clear, but are probably obvious to anyone with two ears and a heart. But they left the song (laughs) naked on there. There are so many people that I know that would sing To Become One around the house when they were like, little kids and yeah their parents would just kind of look at them yeah um, yeah yeah numerous friends of mine can't listen to that song now because they just remember it singing it in the car while their parents are like, yeah kind of side-eyeing them yeah what else was left off the record jordan yes there was a track in the early stages of recording this album called see you next tuesday Yeah, a little on the nose there. And apparently this song has never surfaced in its entirety. See you next Tuesday, of course. If you take the C is the... the, It's an anagram for... It's not even an anagram. Oh, an an acrostic? It's a... Mnemonic? (laughs) What is it? What is it, Jordan? It's It's a... I actually don't know what it is. It's dumb is what it is. It's an anachronism. It's dumb. It's what every it's what every edgy person discovers at some point. The tool bag from Vanderpump Rules has a his DJ his DJ night was called See You Next Tuesday. Like, ooh. I used to do trivia nights and it was on a Tuesday and there was a team that always came that always called themselves See You Next Tuesday. So funny. Ha ha ha. Yeah. But for anyone for any particularly sheltered people out there, I mean, the C is is the Letter C, the U is the letter U, and the first letter of next and the first letter of Tuesday spell out a rude word. <laughs> but apparently it wasn't even that, that they'd left it off. You know, Mel C just said that the track was left off because it was a pile of <laughs> So that's that's the quote. Doesn't yeah. mince doesn't mince words. Yeah, her words, not mine. Uh it was vetoed for the twenty-fifth anniversary reissue of the album, but Mel C. also said that she still has plans for it because she thinks it sounds like a long-lost Lily Allen song, which I kind of like. I can hear that, yeah. Yeah. I like that, too. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So we got to talk about Spice Mania. (laughs) I never thought I would hear you say that. We got to talk about Spice Mania. The absolute global insanity that greeted this group. But yeah, I this is wild to me. Their first arena concert was like after they had already become a complete global world conquering phenomenon. This is October 12th and 13th of 1997. A full year after their first album was yeah. out in the UK. Which is just wild. <laughs> when they were about to go on, Jerry told the other girl she was scared. And Victoria, once again, proving that she is the champion of the soundbite, replied, Don't worry, they're only here to see your big hair and your big boobs. <laughs> My most indelible memory of this band is the Union Jack dress. So, Jordan, take us away. Yes, uh, the Union Jack dress, which I always thought was like this custom-made hot couture, like you know, a lot of thought and effort and time and money went into this, was actually just an ordinary dress that I think Jerry herself sewed a tea towel on. That British flag is just a tea towel that had been sewn on to an ordinary mini dress. It was a black Gucci mini dress that she'd been given to perform at the, it was at the 1997 Brit Awards, which are like the British Grammys. And, you know, it was a Gucci dress, expensive. She'd been given it to perform in. And she just thought it was too, in her words, boring. And she decided she wanted to, and this is again her words, celebrate being British. And she asked her sister to actually stitch this Union Jack tea towel onto the front of this black dress as, you know, a patriotic gesture. It was just, that was all it was meant to be. And, um... <laughs> To avoid being associated with the National Front, which is like this right-wing extremist group in the UK, yeah. she had a peace symbol stitched onto the back of the dress, too. And the group went on to win two Brit Awards that night. Uh, in 1998, so a year after this performance, she auctioned off this by this point instantly iconic dress at the London branch of Sotheby's, and it sold for £41,320. 
And the buyer was um, Peter Morton, who ran Hard Rock Cafe, Hard Rock Hotels and all that. And uh, it's actually, it still, I think, holds the world record for the most expensive piece of pop star clothing ever sold at auction. And uh, Jerry gave the proceeds of the sale to uh, Children's Cancer Charity, Aww. which is very nice. Yeah. Uh, we touched on this earlier, but apparently, uh, you know... Bex was not the strongest singer of the group. Uh, in the early days when she joined, she was still Victoria Adams. She hadn't yet married world-class soccer player and handsome man, David Beckham. Uh, the group was still called Touch at that point when she replaced Melanie Lacohe. Um, and she was apparently too good of a singer, according to the Mirror. She was 22. She was told her voice would overpower the others. And she was replaced by Beckham. Uh, Lacohe now works for the National Health Service as a hospital administrator in Cambridgeshire. And she still sings in a band. Saving lives and making music. Saving lives, a- making music. A- admirable. <laughs> Go hand in hand. <laughs> but <laughs> good old Victoria, despite her cheekbones, uh, <laughs> was not known for her singing voice. She's the only one who doesn't have a solo verse in Wannabe. She's the only one who didn't oh, put out yeah. any solo records after the band broke up. And, uh, Is that... Really? Wow. I I say really. I'm the one who wrote that fact. Right? I should know this, but I still, I that really that still surprises me. I just remember her being like the scary, intimidating one. But it turns out she was the self-proclaimed one. She said she was the most reserved one, and then she knew this. I mean, she told the Independent in 2016 that they would turn her microphone off live because my Aww. voice wasn't up to the other girls' standards. She said they used to turn my mic off and just let the others sing. Luckily. Because I used to wear heels, I just used to jig about a bit and I got away with it, but it never came easily. I was always much more reserved than the other girls. But one thing about Posh that uh, is authentic is, authentic <laughs> is that she was loaded. Uh, her father was a, <laughs> an electrical supplies retailer. And when she was a kid, she used to ask her father to not bring her to school in the family Rolls Royce. <laughs> But again, I got to give this woman her way with a soundbite. She was asked once with the most offensive thing the British press ever wrote about her. And she said that I wear cheap makeup. (laughs) Chanel does not come cheap, darling. (laughs) She's awesome. Did you ever see when she and um, David Beckham uh, were interviewed by Ali G? No, I haven't seen that. It's so funny. I think it was for it was for some charity show. It might have been like. Red Nose Day right. or um, Comic Relief or something like that. And it's so funny. She is so funny and quick. Yeah. And as evidenced by all these sound bites, but also like really humble and self deprecating and great. It made me like her so, so, so much more than I already did. It's definitely worth checking as out. As much of a himbo as Beckham is, I bear him no ill will. <laughs> I like, I, I remember one of the page six items I wrote about him was that he was spending a lot of his pandemic time beekeeping. Which I was just oh, like, that. that is so endearing. Like, you're just famous for being good looking and mega rich. And you, what do you do in your like dotage years? Like, you're as you decline into middle age, you beekeep. I love that. Um, are there any other famous beekeepers out there? I feel like uh, there's that's, a lot of them. That, Flea, a... Flea, Flea from the Chili Peppers is probably one of the most famous. Well, it's, it's a bit on the nose. I know, it? I know. Well, he's got a lot to atone for. <laughs> hate that band uh all right speaking of things i hate prince charles uh jordan take it away 
Yes, at the height of Spice Mania, Ginger Spice pinched Prince Charles' butt and... (laughs) Say it with a straight face. I I forgot that I had written this literally until I was reading this line right now. Um, Yes, uh, Ginger Spice pinched Prince Charles' butt and asked him if he had his... um, His little Charles pierced. Yes, thank you. This is in May of 97. This is May of 97. Yes, there is some backstory to this that we should probably get into. Uh, the Spice yeah. Girls are performing at a charity gig called the, the Prince's Trust Benefit Concert. And they were on the receiving line that they do at all these charity shows where everybody, it's like at the end of a wedding, all the talent lines up and the royal family goes down the line and shakes everybody's hand and pretends to be interested for six seconds and then moves on. Um <laughs> And Jerry Hollowell and Mel B broke royal protocol by planting kisses on both his cheeks because there's, you know, there's all sorts of protocol for how you approach royals and, you know, you don't turn your back on them and you address, you know, speak unless spoken to and, you know, call I would the queen fart ma'am. In his and, mouth. Well, um, Jerry got somewhat close. She supposedly grabbed his bottom. And when asked about this by Rolling Stone, she replied, I pinch everyone's bottom. Why am I going to stop at the prince? He's just a man, just like anybody else, who wants a laugh. Sure. Yeah, Um, why not? Later, when uh, Mel B was sticking her tongue out and showing off her tongue piercing, Jerry asked Prince Charles if he had a Prince Albert. And uh, Prince Albert, named probably apocryphally after Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Charles's great-great-great-grandfather, is, um, well, it's a ring through the head of the penis, folks. Um... (laughs) Sports fans. <laughs> Never let anyone say that we don't have any take-home value on this show. <laughs> um, but if you didn't know that, don't feel bad, because uh, apparently Prince Charles didn't know either, and he asked point blank, what's a Prince Albert? And, uh, <laughs> and I guess the, the British comedian Stephen Fry was also on the line, and he tried to clue him in and said, um, it, it, it's, a, it's a piece of intimate jewelry, sir. <laughs> That's um, an all-time great euphemism. Yes. And then Emma, I guess dur- as this whole exchange was going on about bottom pinching and Prince Albert's, Emma, Baby Spice, was asking after Prince William, who at this point was 14 years old. And he apparently, he supposedly took down his Pam Anderson poster at boarding school and replaced it with one of Emma. Baby mm. Spice was his favorite Spice Girl. So she asked about him, and Prince Charles said, don't be a cradle snatcher. It's pretty rich considering Prince Andrew's sta- oh! uh, stature in 2022. Giving my air horn app open. <laughs> yeah. Burr, burr, burr. Oh, man. And Prince Charles was not even the only global figure that uh, the Spice Girls had a run in with. Yeah, I love this so much. The Spice Girls met Nelson Mandela. A lot of listicles cite Nelson Mandela as calling the Spice Girls his personal heroes. I can't tell mm-hmm. if he was just doing a bit. No offense to the Spice Girls. So. I'm, I'm <laughs> guessing he's just doing a bit. Yeah. But um, I guess during this visit, Mel B stole some of Nelson Mandela's toilet paper and gave squares of it as gifts to her hair and makeup people. All due respect, that feels like a piece of uh, ephemera you would own. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> Square of Nelson Mandela's toilet paper. Yeah, th- no, this unused. is unused. This, yeah, unused, hopefully. Uh, this is early <laughs> on in this show, and I'm sure this will be a, a much beloved recurring segment of uh, useless ephemera that I own. I have framed over my desk a piece of carpet from John Lennon's house. I also have a piece of carpet from Elvis Presley's Graceland. 
I have mm-hmm. oh, what else do I have? I just have, I have like a fishing lure Deckwood. from Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, Deckwood from the Titanic. Yeah, piece of the Berlin Wall. All sorts of useless crap. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I I do have to say as I researched that factoid, I was privately jealous that I don't have a piece of a square of toilet paper from Nelson Mandela's house. Also. But the Spice Girls wouldn't have to steal Nelson Mandela's toilet paper for long because Spice is the best-selling girl group album of all time. Uh, We mentioned earlier about the debut success of Wannabe, but the record debuted at number six on the Billboard 200, uh, eventually reaching number one for five weeks and selling 1.46 million copies within its first 12 weeks of release. Wow. Became the biggest-selling album of 1997, 5.3 million copies sold by the end of the year. After the album went to number one, Virgin gave each of the women a $500 Tiffany's voucher, which seems kind of chintzy, Richard. What is that? Your record made us untold millions. Here's And it, it allowed three. me to make a spacecraft. Yeah, here's three figures of a gift card at Tiffany. That I mean, what can you buy at Tiffany's that's five hundred dollars? I mean, that's like that doesn't even buy you a full thing. Yeah, it gets you in the door. Uh, There have been a reported thirty-one million copies of this record sold worldwide. It's the biggest-selling album by a girl group in music history, and one of the most successful albums of all time. That's up there in like Michael Jackson and like ACDC back in black territory, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna check that, but. It has to be. Total certified copies. I'm uh, seeing 23 million, which puts it in the Backstreet Boys, Millennium, Purple Rain, Joshua Tree, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Do you know what my favorite? It does. It, that's it, Yes. But do you know what one of... I, I love the fact that Back in Black is supposedly one of the most... Is like the number two per wiki. That rules so hard. Right after Thriller. Back in that Black, That is baby. crazy. I love that. Good for them. But I'll tell you who didn't make this one of the best-selling records of all time. Critics. <laughs> uh, how's that for a clunky segue? Also, the Recording Academy. No Grammy nominations. Rolling Stone gave it 1.5 stars. In a review written by Christina Kelly, the magazine said, Following in the footsteps of Take That and New Kids on the Block, two other bubblegum pop groups that were also huge in England... Spice Girls offer a watered-down mix of hip-hop and cheesy pop balladry. And like New Kids on the Block, Spice Girls are five attractive young things, each with a distinct personality, a la the village people. Oh my god. Brought, I know, brought together by a manager with a marketing concept. Despite their pro-woman posing, the girls don't get bogged down by anything deeper than mugging for promo shots and giving out tips on getting boys in bed. So some salient points there, but has not aged well. I do think it's really interesting that people were tarring them as being a marketing creation for having such distinct personalities, but that was their own direction. Yeah. And that their manager was like, we want you all to be interchangeable. Anyway. The Spice Girls, I mean, despite all those kind of bad reviews, it kind of set the stage for a lot of the... I mean, the there was that great the new Chuck Klosterman book that just came out called The 90s, mm. where, and he makes the point of there kind of being two very distinct 90s where the first half at least musically, was sort of the grunge era. And then the second right. half, the, the dividing line being Kurt Cobain's suicide in 1994, and yeah. then the second half of the 90s being what he loosely termed the TRL era, which you really see being yeah. filled with uh, 
pop groups. I mean, you get your Britney Spears, your Christina Aguilera's, your NSYNC's, your Backstreet Boys. And the Spice Girls phenomenon, I think, is is sort of among the first of that crowd to really connect mm-hmm. over here. I, I can't remember exactly when all those others came out, but I think it was closer to 98, 99. So it kind of set the stage for, um, for the pop explosion at the end of the decade. And, um, you know, I mean, this was a time when... In 1996, alternative rock, hip-hop, and R&B dominated the global music charts. I mean, the Spice Girls even said this in their, I think it was their first ever interview in May 1996 with the outlet Music Week. Jerry Hollowell said, We want to bring some of the glamour back to pop, like Madonna had when we were growing up. Pop is about fantasy and escapism, and the Spice Girls phenomenon was credited as changing the music landscape by reviving the pop music genre. And, like I said, bringing about this wave in the late 90s and early 2000s of these teen pop acts like Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, NSYNC, 98 Degrees, I mean, go on and on. Limp Bizkit. (laughs) You forget how much they were on MTV, dude. I mean, one thing, Fred Durst is... Whatever. Uh, but that dude played the game. They were on TRL so much. I remember seeing that Yankee, that stupid backwards Yankee cap more than the <laughs> face of my loved ones. Um. Anyway, what else you got? <laughs> Speaking of Fred Durst. Yeah, I mentioned the uh, piece written by Cheryl Garratt in The Guardian in 1996, and she has a really great quote. In 10 years' time, this was right after the wannabe single came out, in 10 years' time, long after the lesser Britpop guitar bands have been forgotten, you'll hear wannabe on the radio, you'll hear them tell you what they want, what they really, really want, and you'll smile because it'll bring back some memory of 1996, something you were doing when you heard them sing of their zig-a-zig-ah, and by then... <laughs> There'll be a whole generation of 20-year-old girls who will owe just a little bit of who they are to the Spice Girls, which, as it happens, is not a bad thing at all. It's a good note to end on, I feel like. Yeah. Well, folks, thank you for taking this trip through Spice World with us. Which is not available on streaming services, by the way. If there's anyone who works for any of these streaming platforms, please put that movie on, because I would love to see it, aside from, you know, my old VHS copy. Please. (laughs) Thanks for listening, folks. Uh, This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. I'm Jordan Runtog. Thanks for spending this time with us. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.